Hello, I'm Peyton Reed, director of Ant-Man and the Wasp. I'll start by talking about this uh, prologue we shot. That's an actual shot we originally shot for the first Ant-Man of our uh, Hank Pym location in San Francisco. We decided we wanted to start this movie with a prologue that showed Janet Van Dyne and Hank Pym in the 80s heyday. Of course, that's the great Michelle Pfeiffer there. And we uh, have had our friends at uh, Lola, the visual effects company who really specializes in this quote-unquote youngification. We really felt it was important emotionally to show the audience Hank and Janet in their prime, the original Ant-Man and the Wasp, and also to, uh, to witness the uh, fateful evening where they are called into action and they uh, have their last moment together, Hope and Janet, of course, not knowing it's the last time they're going to see each other. But it was important to set up a, this prologue where we're emotionally connected to the uh, present-day mission to uh, save Janet Van Dyne. And here now we're witnessing a piece of the uh, flashback from the original movie, but from a different point of view. We sort of see the moments before, and now we re-experience this uh, missile flashback from the first movie, but we're privy to new information and really experiencing it from a more emotional point of view. This is a combination of uh, some visual effects stuff from the first movie and some new shots that we did. In, it's interesting, in the first movie, we see the original Wasp and we sort of just see her eyes through the mask long before we cast Michelle Pfeiffer, obviously, in the second movie. But I remember talking to casting and to visual effects and, and saying, you know, well, her eyes, you know, that we see through the uh, mask, she should look like Michelle Pfeiffer. But Michelle was always my dream casting for that role, and that was before we even knew that we would be making a second movie. So fortunately for us, uh, we went out to Michelle when the time came for the second movie, and she said yes. It was important also to set up the quantum realm, what had happened to Janet in the quantum realm, that she was lost, and then, of course, uh, reminding the audience of the events of the first movie where Scott Lang went in and was able to get out. And again, it was important to really have an emotional underpinning for this mission, particularly uh, between Hank and Hope, who are really joined at the hip in this movie in a very different way than they were in the first movie. They're working together as this team of father-daughter super scientist superheroes, and we really wanted to see uh, the emotional bond and the moment that uh, Hank talks to Hope and says, you know, now that Scott's made it out, I think it might be possible for us to build this tunnel and possibly get your mom back. It struck us all from the very beginning as we were formulating the story, and the spine of this movie is obviously about Scott and Hope's partnership. Are they gonna be able to be a successful partnership, both professionally and personally? And in doing that, we really, really, uh, we're trying to figure out a way to uh, ha you know, create an arc for that thing, and, and it came. we came up with the idea that they were gonna be estranged at the beginning. But this prologue was important to really sort of reacquaint the audience with Hank and Hope, and also that it's gonna be a very different dynamic between them in this movie. They're not at odds as they were for the bulk of the first movie. They're absolutely a team. This, of course, is the Marvel Studios logo, special edition, 10th anniversary. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp is the 20th movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The original Ant-Man was the 12th movie. They're making three movies a year now, and again, these are all very big, colossal, visually dense movies. And there it is, Michael Giacchino's score and a red 10-year logo there.
Now, present day, we knew we wanted to start this movie where uh, Scott Lang was on house arrest. We had to deal not only with the events of Ant-Man 1, but also with Captain America's Civil War. Uh, so this movie, in some ways, is a sequel to both those movies. The events of Civil War were crucial to us because it set up a couple of things. It set up the fact that Scott was in violation of the Sokovia Accords and he'd have to do house arrest. But it also set up emotionally, you know, when I first saw the early cut of Civil War, my first thought was like, oh, Hank Pym is going to be pissed off and, and Hope Van Dyne is going to feel betrayed. And that gave us a great dramatic starting point to, to start the characters where they're estranged. It also struck us... We like the idea that Scott is continuing his quest to be a good father to his daughter. So what he's done here, he's on house arrest and he goes to these great lengths to keep her entertained. And we came up with this idea of doing a very lo-fi, tactile adventure that he takes her on at the beginning, where she's been asking, you know, what's it like to shrink? What's it like? And he decides, well, I'm going to show you. I can't shrink you down for real. That would be irresponsible. And by the way, I'm no longer Ant-Man. But I'm going to build this thing and kind of give you an idea of what it's like. And it sets up a couple of things for us. It sets up the idea that maybe Scott misses being Ant-Man and also that Cassie is very curious about it. And one of the really fun things about this movie to me is this dynamic between Scott and Cassie. Abby Ryder Fortson, who plays Cassie, of course, is three years older in this movie than in the original. It's really fun to see uh, her grow up before your eyes in these two movies. And she's such a sharp, focused young actor. And... The stuff between the two of them, I think, is is really my favorite in the movie. It really is the emotional core of the movie. It was important to also continue this thematic of fathers and daughters that we had uh, begun in the first one. No, no, not at all. I mean, because it's a lot of security cameras. I know what he needs. Who's the security expert in our business? I mean, you are, but I'm running the company, right? And if we over Obviously, here's Michael Pena as Luis. Um, we're telling the story that, you know, Scott and Luis are roommates now. And also, it was important as we figured out how to progress the movie. I had never directed a sequel before, it must be said. And one of the things I like in sequels is when, at the beginning of the movie, you're not picking up those characters just from where they ended up in the first movie. You're progressing them, and the audience has to play a little bit of catch-up as to what's going on. So we decided, in this movie, Scott and his friends are, are not just ex-cons who are trying to avoid going back to a life of crime. Now they have their own business. They're small business owners, and... The success or failure of that business becomes a crucial part of the story. Here, of course, uh, Scott has gone to really elaborate lengths to create a flying ant scenario for Cassie that goes all through the apartment and out the backyard. This uh, shot in uh, San Francisco and a little bit in Atlanta to look like San Francisco. So one of the things I really like about the Ant-Man movies and their place in the MCU is that we can create a movie where there are different levels and different acts of heroism. It's not just, you know, fighting villains and all that stuff. It's these smaller moments of heroism about a guy really trying to be a great father. And also that we give kind of equal dramatic weight to whether their company XCON succeeds or fails. Here, of course, is Randall Park, who plays uh, Agent James Wu, Jimmy Wu, uh, a character from the comics who we sort of reinvented for the tone of our movie. Uh, Randall's someone that I had worked with briefly in television, and he's gone on to do so many different amazing roles in film and television. He's always funny, and he's, he's, he's very different kinds of funny in different movies, and I was thrilled when he said yes to this role. And it was important to create a character who worked as the enforcer of Scott having to stay on house arrest. 
you have to buy that he's good at his job and he's a formidable foil for Scott, but also someone who's a very straight-laced character and maybe even, uh, you know, uh, wants to be friends with Scott Lang. <laughs> Randall's someone who can absolutely go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Paul Rudd in terms of improv. This conceit also, we knew we were going to have to sort of explain to an audience who maybe hadn't seen the first Ant-Man or hadn't seen Captain America Civil War and get them up to speed on what was going on, the rules of the Sokovia Accord and house arrest. This struck us as very funny, a guy who's explaining it to a kid and has no idea how to relate to kids and just goes on this long-winded rant of all the particulars of the Sokovia Accord. Wow, you're really great with kids. Thanks, I'm also a youth pastor. Anyway, not to be a Johnny ass. It was also important to set up that it wasn't only Scott uh, that had gotten in trouble, that S Scott getting caught in Civil War suddenly put Hank Pym and Hope Van Dyne and their technology on the map. So now they've had to go underground and are on the run from the FBI. And, uh, of course, that's what uh, Agent Wu is asking about here. This uh, apartment set is based on an actual apartment in San Francisco that we uh, shot our exteriors uh, in San Francisco and then rebuilt our movie's version of the apartment on stage at Pinewood uh, in Atlanta. And out the window, those are we shot giant photographic trans lights, which um, worked out well. So there's no green screen out those windows. It's all, all practical stuff there. Here, of course, Judy Greer and Bobby Cannavale reprising their roles from the first movie as Scott's ex-wife Maggie and uh, her husband Paxton. In talking about how we were going to progress these characters, in the first movie, Scott Lang makes a promise to his wife that he's going to get an apartment and get a job and, you know, do everything it takes to be in Cassie's life. So we really wanted to forward that here, and we liked the idea that both Paxton and Maggie are extremely supportive of Scott Lang and his attempts to stay clean and stay straight. We also like the idea of coming in. Scott has three days left on this uh, two-year house arrest, and we really love the idea that um, we looked at movies like Midnight Run and After Hours and these things that had these strong ticking clocks, what we kind of called a one crazy night movie. And it struck us tonally that that was something that would work for this movie. Now, of course, we cue Come On, Get Happy, the Partridge Family theme by the Partridge Family, something I loved as a kid and it just struck us as the right tone for this movie. We also established many things here on House Arrest. He goofs around. He's studying uh, online close-up magic. Paul Rudd doing karaoke. That seemed like a no-brainer to all of us. Um, absolutely his sweet spot. But this was also sort of like uh, showing how it's, oh, this is going to be easy. Three more days. I'm going to do these ridiculous things around the house, and I'm also going to work on this Carapetian uh, apartment deal that we're working on. We're sort of setting the seeds here for... Uh, what's going to be going on with Luis and Kurt and Dave and Scott and their new company. Here, of course, is the contractually obligated shirtless hero shot. Any actor who signs on for a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie has to be in shape and do a shirtless scene. That's not true. None of that's true. So here now, we, uh, we revisit the quantum realm. Scott is having this thing that at the time we don't quite know what it is. Is it a dream? Is it a vision? But it's beginning, it's the beginning of us starting to sort of visualize this notion of quantum entanglement. It struck us uh, as we were formulating the story that we, we knew that this was going to be centered around the potential rescue of Janet Van Dyne from the quantum realm. Now that Scott got out successfully in the first movie, Hank Pym and Hope Van Dyne's wheels have started turning. Is it possible? Could she be down there? They've built this tunnel, and 
they don't know her location. They don't have proof positive she's alive, but they're not going to give up in their quest. And now here's this wrinkle. Scott Lang has this vision, which he's confused by. And this is really where we, uh, we start to sort of uh, thread in the idea that they're estranged and he's really not in their lives. And the circumstances of this mission bring them together again. That seemed like a strong way to deal with both the Scott-Hope uh, relationship in the movie and also the journey. We refer to this uh, throughout the writing process as the psychic breadcrumb that in the first movie, we actually planted the seeds, which you, if you go back and watch the DVD or Blu-ray of Ant-Man, the original Ant-Man, when Scott is down in the quantum realm, you can briefly see a reflection in the Ant-Man helmet of something that looks like an angel or perhaps the wasp. And we sort of set the seeds that at some point he had an encounter, which clearly he doesn't remember. But the idea that when he was down there, they had some sort of contact and she planted some information in his head. And this was, this was us dramatizing quantum entanglement. So essentially, Scott becomes a crucial piece of the puzzle that Hank and Hope need if they're gonna pull off this rescue. Here is a little clip from Animal House. As we were talking about the quantum realm and the idea that, you know, there could be worlds upon worlds down there, you know, you know in the subatomic realm. Uh, I remember that scene from Animal House where they're talking about, uh, you know, entire universe could, could exist in my fingernail. So we were able to license that clip from Universal and uh, just have it as a little Easter egg in the background. Here uh, we've just seen rather obliquely the first appearance of Wasp in the movie. She tranquilized darts uh, Scott Lang in the neck and kidnaps him here. We love the idea that he is brought into this mission against his will and playing with this kind of um, crime genre thing that uh, we, we, you know, in, in formulating the story, we talked a lot about uh, Elmore Leonard novels and creating a movie where, yes, there is a main antagonist, but there's also lots of other level antagonists and things, sort of like an Elmore Leonard novel. And this is our nod to Big Lebowski, Scott Lang in a bathrobe, sort of passively being yanked into this uh, adventure. Here, of course, we reveal that they're shrunken the whole time, the giant pigeons. I should mention here, Steph Soretti, our visual effects supervisor, he had the same, there he is, opening a door in the background. That's actual Steph Soretti. That's his Hitchcock cameo in the movie. Uh, Steph did visual effects for the first Guardians of the Galaxy and for Doctor Strange and just uh, knocked it out of the park for us in Ant-Man and the Wasp, you know, doing all sorts of things, creating giant ants, small ants, uh, the quantum realm, shrinking and growing. Uh, we decided we really wanted to go nuts with the Pym Particle in this movie and not just confine it to shrinking and growing Scott and Hope, but also vehicles and buildings and, and really just go nuts with the conceit. So here, uh, when we talked about the idea of Hope kidnapping Scott, it made sense for us to sort of have them in a car and then slowly reveal, oh, they're shrunken down and she's driving this miniature car through the city. My biggest mandate, I think, about the visual effects in this movie is photorealism. Again, same thing in the first movie, which is, you know, we're not in outer space, we're not in Asgard, we're in, you know, the real world. We're in the city of San Francisco and it's the mundane world we all know and take for granted. Uh, so that when there's shrinking and growing activity going on, it has to look as photorealistic as possible. It has to feel like if you're in a coffee shop in San Francisco and you look out the window and there's giant man trying to stop a flatbed truck, like what would that actually look like? So that was the mandate, really photorealism. And then when we get to the quantum realm later, I'll discuss sort of how that ties in to that as well. 
This we shot in Oakland. It's a combination of stage and Oakland and creating this, uh, what was supposed to look like a rundown, really um, kind of personality-less office building. And the idea that maybe having gone underground that Hank and Hope have hit on hard times and Scott is just sort of piecing things together. Scott Lang, of course, in addition to being the ultimate everyman in, uh, in the MCU, he's really the audience's eyes and ears throughout this adventure. He's always asking the questions that the audience would ask and he's maybe a half step behind here at the beginning. But now we see uh, they're not in fact living in a rundown building. They uh, have created this entirely new laboratory in which Hope and Hank are working on this amazing quantum tunnel. The quantum tunnel, I should do a shout out here to Shepard Frankel, our production designer. This is the largest physical set that's ever been built for a Marvel movie. It's a little counterintuitive that Ant-Man and the Wasp has the largest physical set. The inspiration for the quantum tunnel, one of the things I mentioned to Shepard early on was the old Erwin uh, Allen TV series, The Time Tunnel. I, I loved it as a kid, watching it in reruns. And so that was really the initial inspiration for this design of the quantum tunnel. Here, Hank and Scott are reunited for the first time. Doesn't go very well. And uh, that was something when we landed on the idea that these characters would be estranged at the beginning that really felt strong to us in terms of the uh, overall arc of the relationship and giving them something to play. Can we start? Yeah. So while you were relaxing at home, we were building this. It's a tunnel to the quantum realm, to my mom. I also am going to talk a lot about Evangeline Lilly and Hope Van Dyne. One of the big thrills of doing this movie in the first place and it being called Ant-Man and the Wasp was to finally give her her day in the sun. We'd obviously really told her origin in the first movie that she's extremely powerful and smart and capable, a super scientist, the daughter of two superheroes, and that she's sidelined in the first movie because her dad is being overly protective and doesn't want her to meet the same fate as her mom did. But obviously she's the person who trained Scott Lang to be Ant-Man in the first movie. So when we knew we uh, were gonna be making this movie, there was a huge responsibility I felt to like this, okay, this is Wasp's coming out party. And working closely with Evangeline from the very beginning about creating a dimensionalized character for Hope. And how we were gonna progress that character and make her a little different from the Hope of the first movie. She and her father have reconciled and the weight of that has really been lifted from her. And how does that affect her as a character? I did, I destroyed it, I swear. I can't believe you destroyed my suit. So again, working in this set was really fun because it was a massive, massive set down at Pinewood in Atlanta that we could move around in and choreograph and block all these scenes and move through these sets. The quantum tunnel was a physical thing. This quantum array they've just been up talking on, which is the sort of location device for the quantum realm. That was a, a gigantic set that that Shepard built. What? It's really fun to look all throughout the set for visual cues. There are things like these plastic things you use to tie together loaves of bread, and there are light bulbs, and there are, you know, volume knobs from speakers and clothespins, and all these things that are found objects that he's grown or shrunken to sort of help construct the lab. You'll see pieces of erector sets and things all throughout. And of course, as they pass by a window, you see giant Duracell batteries that are at least in part helping power the tunnel. We like the idea of kind of keeping the audience off balance about when they were small or when they were large. It's where I hid every time that we played. Here, of course, he's dropped some hints about this vision that he had 
and they start to recognize the details of this mission that, yes, in fact, this seems to be Janet Van Dyne trying to communicate through Scott Lang, using him as a vessel. So now we really start the sort of forward motion of our story here. They have the proof that they need in their minds that, yes, she's down there. They need Scott. Reluctantly, they need Scott because he's got this information in his head. And, of course, Scott just wants to be in his apartment living out his last three days of his house arrest. So our characters are in conflict from the beginning here, and now we just start to go nuts with the shrieking and growing. We introduced the Hot Wheels rally case, a toy uh, which, by the way, I had as a kid and used all the time, and that was really sort of the genesis of that idea was, well, if they're underground, you know, in most movies when you're trying to keep ahead of the law, you switch cars or license plates to kind of throw off the, uh, the FBI. And here it occurred to us that, well, he could just shrink the cars down and put them in a Hot Wheels rally case and switch cars and grow another one, and that seemed like a really fun idea. Then we introduced, of course, the, uh, the shrunken lab this giant lab that uh, he's constructed and shrinks down, and it's like a roller case that you'd take through an airport. Again, just sort of going nuts with all the shrinking and growing technology. Here, as they leave the site of the shrunken lab, we also introduce our chief antagonist, Ghost. One of the things I really wanted to do in Ant-Man and the Wasp was get out into the city of San Francisco more to really open up the movie and have the city be a character in the movie. And to also design action sequences that were very specific to the city, to the topography, and to the landmarks in the city themselves, which you'll see later on. There, we just sort of set up the Altoid gag, which will pay off later on. And now we introduce Sonny Birch, a character also from the comics, but who is in this movie inhabited by the amazing Walton Goggins. Walton is somebody that I have I uh, loved ever since I saw him in uh, The Apostle, the Robert Duvall movie. I remember seeing him in that years ago and thinking like, okay, that guy, is that guy even an actor? He seems like a real guy. I'm from the South, Walton's from the South. He just, he felt authentically Southern to me. He's gone on to make an incredible career for himself and I was thrilled we got him in this movie. Sonny Birch is sort of a, he's the guy who is getting them these super specific components they need to build the tunnel. They've had to go underground and get them through the black market because, of course, Hank and Hope are wanted at this point. And they've been lying to him about their identity. And, of course, he's onto them here, so the stakes are increased. We like the idea of this character who was kind of a wannabe. You know, he's got his hands in all these different criminal enterprises. He runs this restaurant. He procures this uh, the black market technology. But he really wants to move up to the next level and rub shoulders with superheroes and powerful people like Tony Stark or Hank Pym. So um, he becomes a real fly in the ointment. And again, this is kind of in keeping with the Elmore Leonard-esque vibe. As I said, Midnight Run was a big influence to us, where in that movie you have a very simple goal. You know, Robert De Niro's got to bring Charles Grodin in and collect the bounty. But there are rival bounty hunters, and there's the FBI agent, and all this double-crossing and all these complications that come between them, and that seemed like a great... Uh, tone for us. The first movie, of course, totally was a heist movie. We wanted to stay in the crime genre, but kind of do a, a bit of a different thing. And we liked the idea of, you know, this shrunken lab being almost this MacGuffin that falls into the different hands. And uh, there's Sonny Birch, and of course there's Ava Starr, Ghost, who we're about to see in a few minutes. I'm arranging some buyers for your lab. Starting bid. There was a huge onus on this scene for me at the beginning in designing the first time the audience is introduced 
to Wasp. And it felt to us like we wanted to see Hope Van Dyne in action. We wanted to see what this movie's Hope Van Dyne was, the fact that she's very capable and she's tough and she's going there to make a very above board deal. They're trying to get this part. She's upheld her into the deal. She's brought the money and the transaction goes south. He doesn't give her the component and he keeps the money. And it was important that she do everything in her power to not have to put on the wasp suit and to just deal with this as above board as possible. But of course he doesn't allow that and what that allows us, the storytellers to do, is to introduce Wasp and watch her kick ass. We chose this location, this uh, sort of giant hotel-like restaurant in downtown San Francisco, which is actually in downtown Atlanta. But it gave us the real estate to sort of create this thing where we could choreograph this ongoing fight scene in the restaurant that spills into the kitchen and very quickly demonstrate how powerful she is as a hero. Hold on, you gave her wings? It also doesn't hurt to have Scott Lang comment and be a little resentful of the fact that clearly Hank has been spending more time developing the wasp suit and, and the quantum tunnel, and maybe the Ant-Man suit has been left behind as an afterthought, which we also have fun with, with this sort of work-in-progress Ant-Man suit that Scott is forced to wear in the movie, which still has some bugs to be worked out of it. So it was fun to storyboard and work with our previs team and the people at third floor to really, really plan and map out these action sequences in great detail. It was also important to really design these things where they're fun action sequences. There is a comedic vibe to most of these action sequences, which I think is inherent to the Ant-Man movies anyway. But the idea of like, okay, she's gonna be fighting in the kitchen and shrinking and growing, and what sorts of obstacles could we use? Knives and meat tenderizers and salt shakers and all, and just having fun with all the things you'd find in the kitchen. That was another thing to me was in designing all the action sequences is that, again, they, they come from character, like character comedy. And really, uh, with both Wasp and Ant-Man and Giant-Man, that they should feel almost Buster Keaton-esque, right? Where it really is like how they would approach silent movies. You'd have gag writers and coming up with these various gags and kind of how to make it escalate and, and everything. So this was, the goal of this was just to announce, okay, Wasp has arrived and uh, she has been waiting for this and earned this for so long and now she has it and she's not wasting time. She's quick, she's decisive, she's smart and she's... She's ready to kick ass. It's a pleasure doing business with you, Sonny. Here we have the introduction of our main antagonist, which comes as a surprise to both Hope and Sonny Birch in this scene. And there she is, Ghost, a character who was a villain in the Marvel comics in, and really not an Ant-Man villain, actually an Iron Man villain. When we were figuring out kind of who the main antagonist in this movie was gonna be, we look through these gigantic uh, Marvel encyclopedias that have every hero, every villain, every sort of ancillary character. And I love the design of Ghost, just the visual look of Ghost in the comics. That seemed really striking to me and also the power set. In the first movie, we'd done a villain, Yellow Jacket, who had similar powers, right? Who could shrink and grow uh, like Ant-Man, which was great for that movie, but we wanted to do something different in this movie. So this idea of phasing, seemed like there was something there that, that could seem formidable for this uh, partnership of Ant-Man and Wasp to go up against and different than what we did in the first movie. So what we did in the comics, Ghost is a man and he's a computer hacker and sort of an anti-corporate vigilante. 
And we basically just took the basic idea of that character and adapted Ghost to our story. And part of that was doing a gender swap, and it just made sense for our movie where we have this strong thematic of fathers and daughters, you know, whether it's Hank and Hope or Scott and Cassie. And in this movie, even though uh, Bill Foster and Ava Starr are not father and daughter, there is sort of this figurative father-daughter relationship there. So it felt really smart to do the gender swap for that reason. It just felt it fit in with the thematic of our movie. We also like the idea that um, for Hope particularly, going up against the female villain seemed fun. Are you okay? No, he got the lamp. No. Come on. So then we set about sort of designing, you know, the movie's look of the suit. Uh, Andy Park is our uh, head of visual development on this movie, you know, and who did so much great work on the movie. I really do credit him with, with Ghost and the look of Ghost. Uh, the suit is incredible. And of course, Hannah John Common, who plays Ava Starr, Ghost in this movie, knocked it out of the park as well. We'll talk about that in a bit. So really, this movie really wanted to have a lot more forward momentum than the first movie. I was very aware in the first movie, we spent a lot of time in Hank Pym's house and a lot of time in Pym Technologies in the first movie. And I really wanted to get out and about in the city and, and have a lot of forward momentum to this movie. That you would turn us, you know? Not me. Help yourself. Here, of course, we uh, see Luis and Kurt and Dave. Uh, and now this is their, uh, their new company, XCon. What better job for ex-cons to, uh, to do than to start a security company? And they're working on this big contract to get the, uh, the Carapetian apartments, which becomes a big part of the story. But here, Hank, Hope, and Scott go there because they have to figure out a place to, uh, to lay low where they're not going to get caught. And it gives us uh, an opportunity to kind of uh, revisit the dynamics of the guys here. These guys have been working, you know, in their office in a kind of seedy part of town in San Francisco. Scott, of course, has been on house arrest. He's been working for the company from home, but this is the first time he's actually been in the office and, of course, seen uh, the card table that uh, <laughs> Luis has picked out for him for his desk. It's always fun to have these guys and that dynamic. I think it's a, it's a really essential part of the Ant-Man movies and also kind of in keeping with our theme of family, you know, that there is this sort of in the first movie we set up Luis as almost this patriarch of the, the ex-cons. You know, he'd make them waffles in the morning. And here he's, you know, he's really, he's running the company and, and the idea that this is, this is Scott's family as well. There's a bond between these guys because they've been through so much together. And there was something that really felt right about furthering it in this way in this movie. Dr. Pym, you're like the smartest genius I know. Didn't you put some kind of like low jack on your lap? Always fun to put Michael Douglas up against Michael Pena here this genius scientist having to deal with these these guys and uh, there's a genuine affection between those characters but obviously there's a a big mission at hand here and it remains to be seen how Luis and Kurt and Dave are going to figure out or figure into the adventure the lab emits radiation could we modify a quantum spectrometer and track it now we're also laying the groundwork here to introduce uh, another character that I love from the Marvel comics Bill Foster Bill Foster was uh, I believe introduced in some of the early Avengers issues, and he worked alongside Hank Pym doing the uh, shrinking, but mostly the growing technology. He went on to have his own comic in the 70s, which, of course, I had every issue of, Black Goliath. Uh, and uh, I liked the idea of giving Hank Pym a foil in this movie, another super scientist, and when they're together, they're both alpha males and think each other, or think they're the smartest guy in the room. And when we got Lawrence Fishman for that role, uh, it thrilled me. More on that later. Here is Hannah John Common, the first time we see her out of her ghost helmet here. 
we like the idea of creating this, I, I refer to it as an antagonist more than I do a villain, but a character who is incredibly powerful and has these powers that are tied into the quantum research and what Hank and Hope are doing in this movie. Uh, but also that she views and we treat her powers more as an affliction. So this is setting up this, this chamber that she has to go into to sort of you know, be bombarded by this quantum energy. And her dilemma in this movie is that it's literally an existential crisis. She is phasing and can't control the phasing and she's about to phase out and disappear. And it puts her on a collision course with our heroes because she has figured out she needs that tunnel to help save her life. This was shot actually on the Berkeley campus. The one shot we shot actually at Berkeley, which was important because I wanted it all to tie in to the city of San Francisco. Here we introduce the great Lawrence Fishburne as Bill Foster. I first met with Fish at the offices of Marvel Comics. We, the two of us sat in there and just talked about who this movie's version of that character was going to be, how I wanted it to differ from the versions in the comics, and kind of how he was going to be uh, a major foil to, uh, to Hank Pym. These two guys clearly have something in their past, and, and also con continuing this thematic that Hank Pym, who of course is the mentor figure in these movies, but he's also a bit of an unreliable mentor. He's got some anger issues, and, and we like to continue in this thematic that he doesn't always play well with others. And in this particular movie, uh, that idea of him not playing well with others really kind of jumps up and bites him in the ass. The idea that this thematic of, you know, the sins of the father come back to revisit the daughter in this case. It's incredible. You're linked to Janet. It's quantum entanglement between the quantum states of Posner molecules in your brains. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Did you guys just put the word quantum in front of everything? When we were constructing the origin for Ghost, we liked the idea that it was tied in to Hank Pym's story, that there was a personal vendetta there from Ghost. She really holds Hank Pym accountable for her condition, even though that's not entirely the case. This scene here was, was really uh, a great opportunity to kind of pit these two together and start to show a bit of the backstory. For someone, for, for Bill Foster, I needed someone like Lawrence Fishburne, who really has this gravitas and can hold his own against Michael Douglas. In first meeting with Fish, I didn't realize he was such a comics nerd. He's incredibly well-versed on Marvel comics as well as DC. And also, you know, he'd be around the set reading some graphic novel I'd never heard of, but his nerd roots run deep. Plus, I got to ask him lots of Apocalypse Now and Matrix questions, which is always a great time. No, really, I'm curious. 65. Yeah, huge. 65. Here, of course, Scott and, um, and Bill Foster comparing notes about uh, growing and comparing sizes, Goliath and Giant Man sizes. Um, I liked the idea, too, of, of, of creating this character of Bill Foster, who is ultimately a heroic character. He's another person who may have gotten sidelined by Hank Pym in the past, but as you'll see later on in the movie here, uh, he's a guy who's got a very heroic heart and really took it upon himself to take Ava in when she was young and try and find a cure. And now it seems he's a bit in over his head and has had to make some sort of morally dubious decisions. But I like the idea that those characters have some real gray area to them, that it's not just this, you know, standard villain idea, and then also that um, the audience is able to sympathize with both Bill Foster and Ava Starr and, and their dilemmas and what they're going through, uh, but that ultimately he's got a very, very noble countenance about him. And in some ways, Bill Foster is, is oddly like the moral center of the movie. Here, we're sort of like keeping the audience guessing as to who he is and why he's in this movie. Is he going to be a hero? Is he going to be a villain? Is he going to be somewhere in between? 
Here we, uh, we see uh, Agent Wu again, Randall Park, and then we set up our, our other FBI agent who turns out to be uh, Sonny Birch's mole, just uh, giving this guy uh, uh, a couple of scenes uh, to sort of set up that he, uh, we, we, I think he's credited with, <laughs> with smarmy agent. He's Agent Stoltz, really, but we refer to him as smarmy agent. One of the things I promised Michael Douglas in this movie, as opposed to the first movie, was he wasn't going to be just a walking exposition machine. I wanted to give Michael more to do in this movie, uh, you know, in terms of just, you know, jokes, but also giving him some action, you know. There's a point later on in the movie where he suits up and, you know, the, uh, the plan was always for Hope to go down and rescue her mom, but of course the plan has to change when Ghost is introduced and uh, Scott and Hope have to stay up and protect the lab and Hank is forced to go down. So it was fun to give Michael stuff to do here as well. And also to kind of further these characters and, you know, this this idea that, uh, you know, Scott has put Ant-Man behind him, but here in the scene we realize, well, okay, he says he destroyed the suit. He really didn't destroy the suit. He's hidden it, and it, of course, is hidden in the trophy that he and Cassie were playing with at the beginning. What, the trophy? No, it's not here. What do you mean it's not there? Where could it be? I looked everywhere. It's not here. Hey, get away from the plate. We liked the idea as we were formulating the story of we had done a ton of shrinking, obviously, in the first Ant-Man, and there'd been a bunch of giant man in Captain America Civil War. We knew we wanted to feature both in this movie, but we also hit upon this idea of the malfunctioning Ant-Man suit, which uh, we first see here in the uh, school heist. They have to go into Cassie's school and, of course, get the suit out of the trophy. But Hank just uh, has not spent any time developing the suit between the first movie and this one. He's developed it, of course, but he has not ironed out all the bugs. <clears throat> so Scott gets stuck at these variable sizes, and it struck us very funny early on as we were doing uh, pre-production artwork and designs to create this malfunctioning suit. So in this scene, he's two feet tall, he's 20 feet tall, then he's three feet tall. But the idea that um, how weird visually it could look if you did it, uh, did a photorealistic version because he's the size roughly of a three-year-old, but three-year-olds have big heads, and if, if Scott Lang's gonna shrink down proportionally, he's got a very tiny head, and it's just a very odd look. And these scenes here where you've got a giant Paul Rudd head and a normal-sized Evangeline Lilly head, these really, to me, hark back to all those Ant-Man Wasp comics, where you would see real-sized or tiny-sized uh, Wasp with uh, Giant Man. Those were always very uh, exhilarating comic panels for me. I, I loved it, so I wanted to, to do some of that in this movie as well. What are we going to do? This school sequence, though it appears relatively simple when you see it in the movie, was really, I think for me, the most complicated visual effects scene to do. We shot in a real school in Georgia, and the higher mathematics that went into the visual effects of this were mind-numbing because we had to do figure out exactly how small we wanted uh, Scott Lang to be in these particular scenes. Um, there's Brian Husky, by the way, very funny uh, gentleman who I've worked with uh, before and wanted to bring into this movie. This is Mrs. Broadwell's class. Mrs. Broadwell was my uh, eighth and ninth grade English teacher who I loved, so I paid homage to her. Shout out to Mrs. Broadwell. Um, but this stuff here, we're doing motion control stuff, so we had to design our shots very specifically before, and this is the only sequence where we use motion control cameras in the movie. Um, it's an older technology, but it was really necessary for what we were doing here to get all the scale right. Uh, but this was very, very tricky to get the uh, the Paul Rudd Evangeline Lilly scale correct here. Um, and again, as you see it, it's not nothing's exploding and there's not a ton of shrinking and growing, but it's just this the size differential, which is uh, very, very tricky. 
Uh, it was about 100 degrees and 100% humidity in Georgia those days as they're both wearing the suits and we're um, sitting around waiting for motion control cameras to be uh, programmed. Here, one of my favorite shots in the movie. We shot this obviously at the school exterior and then we built a gigantic oversized green screen staircase for Paul to go down and hold on to the railing. Maybe some of that green screen footage will appear on the disc somewhere, but it's, it's hilarious. And just the idea of him kind of going down the stairs like a little kid would, you know, both feet on each stair as he went down. Um, here again, I made good of my promise to Michael Douglas. Michael, if you're listening, you're welcome. Michael gets some jokes in that scene. These movies are filled with lots of technology. And it was important for me in the first and the second movie to kind of delineate between Hank Pym's high technology and Tony Stark's high technology. There's always this sort of um, guy tinkering in his garage quality to Hank Pym's stuff. So you see him cannibalizing this old uh, Ant-Man suit to help build this tracker to, to, uh, to find the lab here. And design-wise, it was fun to play with that. Here, of course, is Ghost Lair. This is an actual concrete modernist building that exists in the suburbs in uh, Noonan, Georgia. And we wanted this section of the movie, obviously our character's name is Ghost, so we did a few little homages, like it's literally a haunted house, our movie's version of a haunted house out in the middle of the woods. And we even added a, uh, a wolf howl so that it really almost has a Scooby-Doo vibe to it, complete with our heroes being tied to chairs in the next scene. But I do know one thing. What? If I Obviously it was important in this movie and one of the things, again, that I like about uh, Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp is that we're not having to deal with 20 or 30 hero characters, and our movie can kind of take time for these character moments. And though Ant-Man and the Wasp is certainly not a romantic comedy, that Scott-Hope relationship and the arc of that relationship throughout the, the movie is really the spine of the movie. So it's important that the movie kind of slow down and have these moments between the two of them. And obviously they're at great odds at the beginning of the movie, but it was important to see that there's a genuine affection between the two of them throughout this movie, in addition to them actually needing each other for this mission. Again, uh, in terms of the visual effects, doing these shrunken shots are some of my favorite in the movie, where you really see these incredibly detailed Ant-Man and Wasp when they're small, like this, and, and seeing their faces. We shoot everything with Scott and Evangeline in this uh, camera setup called the Array. So anytime they're Ant-Man and Wasp in the movie, we shoot them with this five camera setup to get all of their uh, facial expressions and all the lines from the movie so that we put them in the mask of these miniature Ant-Man and Wasp to keep the actors alive throughout, and keep their personalities alive. Again, Shepard Frankel has rebuilt, um, this is a set that we built at Pinewood that's the interior of the ghost lair, keying very heavily off the real structure of that building that we shot, but expanding it and making it very specific to our movie. But the idea was to do this sort of very heavy modernist house that may or may not have been uh, Ava Starr's parents' house. But we like the idea of this very severe concrete thing that, um, that Bill Foster has brought all this rejuvenation chamber and his technology in to try and keep Ava Starr alive. Hannah, I think, is terrific as this character. Hannah came in and she put herself on tape first when we were looking for someone to play this role. We wanted someone who was a relative unknown so that there could be some mystery to this character. And her initial reading was just fantastic. And then of course later we brought her in to read for us and read specific scenes. And she was just fantastic. She has this very striking look and there was mystery to her look. 
And also she was able to kind of capture both the ferocity of this character and the vulnerability of this character. We really liked the idea of setting up this character whose powers were a burden to her and an affliction and that she, her prime motivation, her only motivation in this movie is to stay alive. But she really does bring a lot of colors to this character and, and she's really, really terrific and, and a very charismatic Let's young actor. Get up. Come on. Here, this is a sort of a crazy scene because it's um, we have our heroes tied to chairs and there's a lot that's going on dramatically and comedically in this scene. And here we sort of set up her origin here. And I don't know how many diehard Ant-Man comics fans are out there, but it turns out not only Bill Foster is working with her, but her, her father is Elias Starr, a former colleague of Hank Pym's. Um, in the comic books, Elias Starr is a villain named Egghead. And it's exactly what you think. It's a guy in a lab coat with an egghead. So <laughs> we knew we didn't want to do Egghead as a villain, but we liked the idea that we do this nod to Elias Starr for the, uh, for the deep cut Marvel fans. Quantum research until my father Once again, this idea that uh, affording this kind of father-daughter thematic whether it's literal or metaphorical, with um, Bill Foster and Ava was important. And we ended up rewriting a lot of uh, Ava's backstory here and kind of splitting the narrative between Ava and Bill Foster here. And it was important that Ava be able to tell her own story and that we hear first person sort of the emotional through line of that origin story, that she's very young and was scared for her father and didn't want him to be alone. And obviously she, she blames Hank Pym for this entire quantum experiment. This was shot in a warehouse in Georgia and we built this very remedial quantum tunnel that also, it obviously echoes the design of the big quantum tunnel, but that was something that Shepard Frankel built and we shot in this massive old metalworks uh, in, in Georgia. They've set up shop down in, uh, in Argentina and these are the bomberos, the firemen down there who discover her and, of course, see that she has this quantum affliction. And, uh, and these guys were great and actually taught me a tiny bit of, uh, of Argentinian Spanish. When I say a tiny bit, I mean one line, Shafway. Anyone? When we shoot these scenes, one of the things about the Marvel process that is pretty incredible is we obviously get the script uh, as tight as we want, uh, and I allow for a lot of improving. but there's built-in additional photography set in so that we can actually do some rewriting on film, and it allows us to really, really affect change pretty quickly. Here, I want to stop and talk about our, um, our youngified version of Bill Foster which again, Lola did incredible work on uh, Lawrence Fishburne. I think I stupidly decided to do it on three of the most identifiable actors in Hollywood, Michael Douglas, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Lawrence Fishburne. Anybody who goes to the movies knows what uh, these three actors looked like 30 years ago. So um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was extra, there was a lot of extra attention paid to making sure that uh, they looked correct. We shoot it with the real actor, we shoot it with young versions of the actors, and then we sort of, they seamlessly blend it together. And in uh, Lawrence Fishburne's, that's actually his son, Langston Fishburne, who is performing as the younger Bill Foster. They lied. When Shield collapsed, I took Ava in. 
Uh, the flashback stuff we shot here of Ava, we wanted it to have a little different look from the rest of the movie, sort of, you know, gritty found footage of old sh uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. videotapes and things from the, uh, the sort of darker part of S.H.I.E.L.D. experimenting on her and, and trying to weaponize her technology. That stuff was really fun stuff to put together and, uh, and try and create this in a very short amount of film time, this very dark journey that she's been on. Cassie. This felt like in true uh, Ant-Man fashion that as our uh, heroes are tired up, uh, tied up and listening to the villain's monologue that it would get interrupted by a cell phone call and the idea that we really want to keep alive this notion that Scott Lang, one of the things in this movie, is he's having some work-life balance issues and we really like the idea of, of that being incredibly relatable. He's tied up. He's uh, completely at the mercy of the villains of the movie. He may die at any moment. But he gets a, a 911 text from Cassie, and the big emergency is she can't find her soccer shoes. That feels like something in terms of comedic conceit, dramatic conceit, that really is the sweet spot of the Ant-Man movies. Ava, I want to help you. She doesn't need your help. I know how to save her. Paul and I talked a lot early on as we were formulating the story, and Evangeline as well, that that Scott Hope dynamic had to be very, very clear. It couldn't just be she's the tough, serious one and he's the bumbling idiot. There had to be nuance to both of those things. You had to understand that while Wasp is probably the more powerful of the two, that Scott Lang is still formidable, but that the essential drama with him is that he's not really sure he wants to be Ant-Man anymore, and, and he sort of has to, throughout the course of this journey, realize that it does mean something to him and that he is able to balance uh, being a hero with his duties as a father. Calm down, Hank. It's his heart. He needs his pills. So here we're about to see the uh, the payoff of the setup of the Altoid 10. This apparently is where Hank Pym's heart pills are. And of course it turns out not to be that. He has rigged these uh, trap jaw ants. It was fun kind of going through and furthering what we did in the first movie, introducing these different types of ants. And these are actual ants that exist in real life, trap jaw ants. They're not that big, of course but they do have these incredible, incredibly powerful jaws, which they can snap and cut things and attack things, but also use them to flip and launch them, uh, you know, out of danger. Now we're back in the uh, quantum laboratory with the quantum tunnel. Again, uh, I cannot say enough good things about this set and the work that Shepard Frankel did. This is all practical set that we built here, and the level of detail is just amazing. And the fact that there was functional stuff in there. We did, of course, green screen digital extensions of the set, but the bulk of the set is is real and tactile and I think very uh, an important aspect of this movie. So this is it. And one of the fun things, again, on working of a, on a movie of this budgetary level, uh, that you can really come up with crazy, crazy concepts and then have them built or designed or created, uh, you know, in CG to a level that is just unbelievable. And again, we're the 20th movie in the MCU, so they have this infrastructure built that's really, really incredible in terms of, you know, being able to come up with an idea a handful of days later, see it rendered in some way, and not too long after that, see it fully, fully rendered. It really is counterintuitive and something that, in doing these two movies, was a huge learning curve for me, I think specifically about the way Marvel does it, is that there is an incredible amount of fluidity to the process. Uh, here, again, I'm fortunate to have Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly in these roles, uh, two really incredible actors and, 
the chemistry between the two of them in this movie is is crucial. It was just crucial from the beginning. And in terms of the writing and, of course, the way we uh, shot the scenes, I, I'm really incredibly pleased with uh, the chemistry between those two. Um, here we start sort of continuing this juggling act that Scott Lang has to do, and this is the real-world problems starting to come at Scott Lang, uh, in addition to this, you know, heightened trying to rescue Janet from the quantum realm issue. Here's our shot of the building uh, in the middle of Muir Woods. One of the things, again, when we started formulating the story was just sort of listing, what do you want to see? What do we want to see in, in, a, in another Ant-Man movie, an Ant-Man and the Wasp? And that was one of the earliest images that we did. Once we uh, hit on this shrunken and growing building ideas, let's put it in the middle of Muir Woods and let's put it down by the pier in San Francisco and the juxtaposition of this giant building in places where it shouldn't be. Here's our ex-con guys. This was a scene that I looked forward to shooting for a very long time, putting Walton Goggins up against Michael Pena in this scene. Uh, we knew that we had done these uh, Luis tip montages in the first movie and really, really liked that conceit. And we wanted to find a place for it in this movie, but what we didn't want to do was like, oh, you loved it so much in the first one, let's do it again. We really had to have a, a different point of view, a different take on it. So when the writers hit on this notion of truth serum and maybe Louise and Kurt and Dave are tied up and they administer truth serum to try and get answers about Scott Lang's whereabouts. That struck us as a fun, different way in. And also to uh, not have uh, just sort of uh, Louise's friends and cousins doing it, but to have our main characters and actually have it tell some of the backstory of what went on between the first Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp, particularly between Scott and Hope. When we hit on that idea, it struck us all as funny, and uh, particularly with, of course, Michael Pena and Walton Goggins at the center of it. This is, I think, sort of in terms of uh, this set and the way that our brilliant DP, Dante Spinote, shot it, feels very noir to me. Like, this this really does feel like the tone of our movie and what we were after in terms of making it uh, Elmore Leonard-influenced and things like Midnight Run. If you walk like duck and talk like ducks, the truth serum. Well, I have a lot of allergies, so you might want to think about that. So here we uh, we check back in with Bill Foster and Ava. I should talk about this sort of phasing visual effect that we do for Ghost. That was something that we did a lot of visual effects R&D on, and the idea that visually it wanted to tie in with the quantum tunnel and the quantum realm, and it wanted to have sort of a prismatic quality to it. But it also wanted to be quite subtle at times. I mean, this is this is a dialogue scene. And that visual effect sort of helps tell the story of what's going on with her emotionally. In moments like that, where you see a ghost image of a different part of the same take, or even from a different take of Hannah's, started to feel really, really interesting and, and, and like something we hadn't seen before. Early iterations, you know, felt maybe too glitchy or too digital or felt like, you know, uh, an episode of Max Headroom from the 80s or something. So. It really took a long time to hit on this uh, particular effect. But when we did, uh, we really loved it, particularly where you see the ghosting image move considerably before her or after her. Uh, that started to be really exciting to us. And also, when and how much to do it. Because you didn't want to take away from Hannah's performance too much, because uh, she's terrific. It needed to enhance that performance. So here it is, the true serum scene. 
And the idea that, uh, I should say also, Divian Ladwa there, who plays Usman, uh, I had seen him in the movie Lion, which is uh, an amazing movie if you have not seen it. An extremely emotional movie, dramatic, not comedic at all, but his performance in that movie was so terrific. And he came in and put himself on tape for this role and proved to be incredibly funny, too. And uh, so he's a, a nice addition in this sort of Elmore Litter-esque thing of, of someone there. There we have, uh, we see uh, Luis with sort of his um, his outcast big boy look. <laughs> it's Stanconia era hairdo. Um, we like the idea of like seeing these glimpses of these crucial moments in their past. And also that this version of the story is a bit unreliable. It's Luis's version of all these events happening. And of course, him getting sidetracked by telling the guys about uh, his grandma's jukebox that only plays Morrissey. I used to play drums in a uh, Smith's cover band, Louder Than Bombs, and found out that there was a rival cover band called Sweet and Tender Hooligans, who were very popular in LA. I went to see them, and they were sort of yeah, an all Latino version of um, the Smiths. And they were way better than our cover band, but it was there that I learned sort of, you know, that Morrissey. Uh, you know, was really sort of writing very specifically about, um, you know, East L.A. and characters in East L.A., and it made sense of something that would be part of Luis's life. But here it's all Luis's heightened version, probably based on stuff Scott told him about his relationship with Hank and particularly with Hope. So it was fun to kind of have Paul and Evangeline start to lip-sync uh, Michael's stuff. It's all like that fancy raspberry filling represents a company's red, and we're days away from going out of business. Oh, out of business. This we shot over one long day, and and just Michael went to town. I went back in the cutting room and picked my preferred takes, cut it together basically as a, a radio cut, and then we had that on hand for all the other pieces that we needed to shoot when people would lip sync. And of course, the lip syncing was great. We just set up a dolly and just played it, Michael's lines over a speaker, and had Paul and Evangeline and everybody else do it until they got it right. Here it builds until the appearance of Ghost and uh, the Baba Yaga joke. That was um, Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, uh, two of our writers who um, came up with the Baba Yaga gag. And it was a perfect way to progress David Dasmalshian's character, Kurt, and tying in Ghost to this sort of old uh, Russian folklore. And again, David Dasmalshian, one of the funniest people I know. That freak gets Pam's tech, I'm never going to see it. So what do we do now? It's easier to steal it from the feds. If Tip, T.I., uh, who plays Dave in the movie, also, I think, gets some great moments in this movie, and it was really fun to bring those guys back again because I really do feel like they're, they're part of the, the heart of what the Ant-Man movies are and really kind of, again, dealing with in this very you know mundane way that uh, whether their business succeeds or dies is very crucial to the end of our movie. Here we reveal, of course, that uh, Sonny Birch has a mole in the FBI. We also learned that uh, Agent Wu has become obsessed with Scott's uh, magic, close-up magic, and he's, he's enrolled on the online close-up magic university. The magic thing was something that just felt fun to us as a thing that Scott Lang was going to be doing for Cassie early on, but also that we could build it into our plot in a much larger way. In that way, you know, stuff like the original Back to the Future was a big influence where there's all this setup of these random things in the first third of the movie that seem random at the time, whether it's close-up magic or Altoids or whatever it is, and then uh, see these things paid off throughout the body of the movie. Again, Steph Soretti's the digital work here. Uh, all of this tunnel is practical 
and we even had practical bellows on that giant quantum tunnel, but uh, when it's in motion, it's all digital and feels so real and tactile to me. This scene, I think, I have to say is, at the moment, one of my favorite scenes in the movie. When we talked about heady concepts like quantum entanglement, the big issue became, how do we dramatize quantum entanglement without having Hank Pym go to a chalkboard and, and talk about it? And at one point during the writing, I can't remember who was there. I'm sure it was Paul and I think Stephen Broussard, our producer. I think it was uh, McKenna and Summers, but talking about like, well, what if it's like, what if it's like that Steve Martin movie, All of Me, where Lily Tomlin is inhabiting Steve Martin's body? I mean, maybe not that broad, but what if it's that idea? And when we hit on that, it struck us all as like, okay, yeah, that is Ant-Man's way of dealing with quantum entanglement. And then as the guys wrote the scene and as we shot it, and of course, as Paul, Michael, and Evangeline performed it, it became this, I think, terrific scene where it is them reuniting with Janet, though it's not really them reuniting with Janet, and seeing Paul play Janet Van Dyne and Michael Douglas, the moment he appears in close-up saying, Janet? <laughs> and the movie is all in and, and selling this concept. It's very fun to see this with an audience and see how it plays out. Uh, they're intrigued. The moment that Scott seems a little tweaked and they think they know what's coming, but when it comes, it's just, it's awkward and there's awkward laughter. And then when they really commit to it and it keeps going, uh, it becomes very funny. It's, it's a very uh, satisfying, funny, and also weirdly emotional scene. We talked a lot about the Janet Van Dyne of it all and how uh, before you ever see her in the movie, I mean, you see her in the flashback at the beginning, you see her a little in Scott's uh, vision, but it was important to keep her alive throughout the movie. So when we hit on this concept, it really, it struck us as uh, tonally correct for our movie. And I had an insurance policy, which was Paul Rudd. I knew that Paul was gonna do amazing things with that idea. We talked a lot about, do we have Michelle come in and perform the scene and then have Paul just kind of key off what she did. But, you know, in talking to Paul and Michelle, it didn't seem necessary. It just felt like, okay, this is something that, that Paul can do and, and knock out of the park. This quantum array, I should mention too, uh, I love the effect of this thing. This is kind of what I'm talking about with Hank Pym's technology. There's a kind of clunky, pieced together, tactile quality to this thing. It's definitely not Stark Industries uh, technology. It's something that he's really created and has a very mechanical feel as, as well as a digital feel. Even the, the digital readouts there really feel like they're, you know, more from the 80s. It reminds me of the police ghost in the machine cover. That was my inspiration, Sting. Here we, we played around a lot with sort of how emotional get to get with this mother-daughter reunion that was also slowly building the Scott Hope dynamic. And that seemed like something that was very interesting to us, along with the idea that Scott and Hank are suddenly holding hands and everything gets awkward. All right, first you're gonna see all kinds of lights and it's gonna get really trippy, but then it's gonna turn black. Here, I should also talk about the quantum pod. In the first movie, Scott Lang goes down only in the Ant-Man suit. And he gets as far as this place we call the void. In the first movie, tonally, it feels like a place you don't come back from. But Scott made it out, and uh, so that set them on their journey. In this movie, we needed not only the tunnel, but a dedicated craft of some kind. So we went out sort of like starting to design uh, this quantum pod. 
And basically, that wanted to feel like Hank Pym technology as well. So it feels like, you know, part uh, rocket sled, part helicopter, um, and very much of an era. And uh, it was something that I uh, got very involved in sort of the design of because I, I, I really wanted to have a very particular look and hark back to things like Fantastic Voyage and sort of still have a, a retro vibe to it. And again, Shepard, Franklin, and their team helped design it. Dan Sudik, who's our special effects whiz, uh, built this practical pod, which is just incredible. You can sit in the thing and feel like you could actually, you know, go shooting down this quantum tunnel and into the quantum realm. Here in this sequence again, Scott is screwed up, as Scott uh, tends to do. He's well-intentioned always. He's, you know, trying to make things right for Luis and the guys, but he's inadvertently betrayed their location, and our heroes become estranged again. I, I have to say, I, I love the dynamic between Scott and Hope in the movie. I love what Paul and Evangeline did in the movie and really furthering that dynamic. It's a very different dynamic than in the first movie, which is what we were after from the very beginning um, in the way they relate and in their plot functions. Here again, always exciting to me when we go down into the macro world uh, and spend time with Ant-Man. Back in our apartment here, the mislead, thinking it's the FBI, but it's Maggie Paxton and Cassie looking for her, uh, her soccer shoes. One of the things uh, that was a mandate from me uh, on this movie, as it was in the first movie, is I wanted this movie to be under two hours for a number of reasons. One, I knew we were going to be following Infinity War, which was going to be this massive, massive epic. But most importantly, just because this is a comedy and it's an action comedy and it didn't want to overstay its welcome. So a great part of the post-production process was just the tightening and finessing of this movie. And you had to be careful to not cut out things that, you know, we had set up, the sort of set up payoff of the movie remained really important. Here also, I think it's great. I can't say enough about Abby and how she's developed as an actor, even in the three years since we did the first Ant-Man. But uh, in the comic books, Cassie Lang, uh, as she gets older, becomes a hero in her own right. And though we don't deal with that head-on in this movie, it was fun to sort of plant the seeds of a Cassie Lang who is definitely her father's daughter and who covers for her dad at this very crucial moment in the movie and who for a moment there goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Agent Wu and basically lies for her father and buys Scott Lang some time to get in there and switch out the giant ant. And of course, at this point in the movie, we know that she suspects, okay, he has been Ant-Man again and what's going on. I'll start the van and get the lab. I love the juxtaposition visually of this building uh, in the forest. This again, we shot in the woods in, uh, in Georgia, outside of uh, Fayetteville, Georgia, near Pinewood. And then Steph Soretti and our vendors went in and added all these gigantic redwood trees. And uh, I always love the idea. We, we scouted Muir Woods outside of San Francisco early on in the movie, uh, and though we couldn't actually shoot there, I loved it as, you know, part of the texture of this movie. Again, bringing back Judy Greer and Bobby Cannavale and keeping those characters alive in a movie where there's a lot of story to tell and a lot of plot. I will also mention here Benjamin Byron Davis, who plays Agent Burley there, the big guy. I had done a pilot with Ben and loved him, loved his look, and he's an incredible actor, so I was thrilled to be able to, to bring him into this movie. Sorry, Scott, they're your friends, that's insensitive. I just really needed a win, you know? 
Anyway, I'll be back. Randall Park again, riding that line of authority figure and guy who's just rooting for Scott Lang. <laughs> I love that dynamic between the two of them. Here we're back in Muir Woods, and uh, we further the story of the traitor who is going to uh, going to steal the lab for for Sonny Birch. We talked a lot about in this movie about ghost powers, how she was going to appear, the sort of what the phasing allowed her to do, and sort of how deadly was she going to be killing people left and right. And it was something that we found this balance of, but it took sort of the whole process to find that balance because we knew we wanted to sort of redeem her at the end of the movie and, and show that sort of her future could kind of go any direction. Thanks for coming. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, absolutely. I like that it's, uh, except for what we see out the window, it's delightfully visual effects free and really is just Paul and Abby performing this scene. The writing in the scene, I think, is really terrific because, you know, in the wrong hands, it could be a, a very cloying scene. And uh, we do what uh, Paul Rudd always refers to as the treacle cutter and reintroduce the, uh, the idea of the world's greatest grandma. But we also like the idea that She's suggesting that uh, maybe you need a partner, and she has herself in mind as his partner, and it struck us as really real and poignant and a really great progression of the father-daughter dynamic here. And she also kind of gives her her seal of approval to Hope as a potential partner and also gives him, you know, sort of lays it out to him like, you know, listen, what your, you know, your instinct to be Ant-Man is a good one. It's not stupid to want to help people. And I really like that dynamic. And again, this is all Paul and Abby. And Abby, I think, really loves Paul, and they have a great chemistry in real life. And uh, hopefully you feel that in the scene, and it, and it feels real to me. I think it was also important to me when we did the first Ant-Man, I had no children, and I have two little kids now. I have a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So like keeping this, this sort of father-child dynamic alive in the movie was important to me. And, and Abby, I think, is so good and so focused, but still retains this little kid quality that makes her very special. Agent, we will see you in an hour. An hour? Here's Ben Davis again. Um, this is a fun scene, too, because it almost has, I think it probably has its roots in, um, weirdly, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, <laughs> where they're about to do this crazy, probably suicidal thing. And just before they actually do it, uh, of course, Scott shows up to, to help them. But I really like the, the father-daughter dynamic, the mutual respect and love between these two characters in this scene. And it's, uh, it just feels very fun and, and in keeping with the, uh, the crime aspect of our movie. And also reminding the audience that Hank Pym is not just the mentor character in this movie, that uh, you know, back in the day, he was his own badass hero. And despite all the sort of shortcomings of his personality, at the center of it, he has a mission, and uh, and he has a good heart. Okay. Here we kind of go back to a little of the stuff that we did in the first movie, seeing these glimpses of uh, macro ants and Scott controlling ants. That was another thing in this movie, is kind of finding the balance of not retreading too much of the stuff we did in the first movie, but also not forgetting it, um, keeping it alive, that A-Man just, he doesn't just shrink and grow, he can also control ants and that they become and remain a crucial crucial part of the storytelling and of his powers. Here we shot, uh, this is in the, uh, this is in some building in downtown Atlanta, we made our FBI thing. And this hill okay. where the van is outside, this may be the only hill in Atlanta 
<laughs> when we were trying to recreate San Francisco and Atlanta, I think by Steph Soretti's count, starting from here and really throughout the movie and the car chase particularly, I think probably 75% of it was shot in Atlanta. And our visual effects team photographed plates of San Francisco and comped them in. So much of what you see in this movie is actually Atlanta for San Francisco. Again, we did shoot a lot in, uh, in San Francisco and far more than we did in the first movie, but you'll really be hard pressed to tell what's actual San Francisco and what's um, our digitally recreated San Francisco. How could this happen? I mean, what the dickens? Thank you. We uh, obviously spend a lot of time in this movie in vans and cars, and I like that idea because we wanted, again, the whole movie to be forward motion. We didn't want to be standing around in laboratories and, and houses too much. We wanted to really get everybody out there and, and in the city. Now, that is San Francisco. There it is. That's the real San Francisco. There's Coit Tower up there, and we reintroduce our ants doing things. They are um, they're basically like a living GPS device here. Again, the idea of kind of keeping everything as photorealistic as possible and looking at videos of flocks of birds and how they move in the wind and, and designing these uh, swarms of, of ants and our, our digital building here. Shepard, Franklin, and I talked a lot about this rejuvenation chamber and what it should be like. And as you start to design something like a rejuvenation chamber, you realize how many other movies have similar tropes, whether it's you know, the Empire Strikes Back or anything that someone has put in a chamber and they're all over the place. And how do we make ours different? And we hit upon the idea of these sort of lenticular things, these basically like lighthouse light lenses, these Fresnel lenses that had different dimension and we could play around with light. And it's, um, it's a great kind of tactile texture that we have in the movie. If you want to do something right, you make a list. So we should do that. One, we have to break into that lab. This planning scene, this was something I think we shot at additional photography. A big part of the thing that um, Paul and I particularly work on a lot is finding that balance of Scott Lang as capable hero, but also giving him more uh, actual comedy in this movie than he had in the first movie. Playing him less as the straight man in, in the situation and trying to give him a little more comedy while making sure he's the same guy from the first movie. Uh, this is where we learned that the plan changes and that uh, it makes more sense for Scott and Hope to stay up and, and for Hank to go down. Evangeline is so good and so committed in this role, and I, I think I haven't talked enough about really how she saw this hero and how she wanted it to be different from some other heroes. A big part of it was in the detail work. You know, she, she always talked about, I don't want to do these, you know, elaborate fight scenes and then have my hair and nails perfect. And, you know, if, when I fight, I want to sweat and I want to be, you know, flushed in the face. and. My hair, I don't want it to be all glam. I want it to be in a very practical ponytail because that's the only way the helmet will come on and off. And, you know, she thought so much about the detail work and really pushed to retain it throughout. And that coupled with just sort of her, you know, knowing emotionally where that character was at every moment in the movie, which in an action comedy is not always easy. She really, really brought everything to this, to this character in the movie. And... Um, and worked so incredibly hard on this character, and I think it pays off in the movie. Um, and I think she felt a certain responsibility to this character and to the fact that this movie is Ant-Man and the Wasp, and it really is Hope's emotional journey. What is it? Don't know. Here again, um, in designing the set, 
we wanted it to be not only tactile, but sort of retain, you know, a very colorful quality to it in, in keeping with what we did in the first movie. You know, there's, there's a lot of primary colors, not making it candy colored, but really kind of keeping the technology kind of fun and interesting and harking back to sort of some of those more retro science fiction movies. In trying to figure out these trap jaw ants and uh, you know whether they were large or small, people have asked like, so are the ants normal size ants that were um, in the shrunken lab, and when you grow the lab, they become big, uh, or are they grown separately? And you know what does Hank feed them? We actually had a shot of him feeding ants sugar from a sugar bowl that that uh, didn't make the final cut. But yes, Hank's very good to them. He uh, he treats them well. He limits their hours. He pays them overtime if they're putting in too many hours. He he, he really treats them well. There's no abuse going on here. Lawrence Fishburne, again, I think, uh, turns in a performance in this movie that's really delicate and really, you know, he, he's such a, uh, a conflicted character, but he always, you know, keeps his sort of hero's heart in plain sight in this movie, and it's, it's something that I really, really, I love in this movie. I, again, he's someone I just can't imagine anybody else playing that, that character. Again, I'm making good on my promise to Michael Douglas. Yes, you get to suit up in this movie, and yes, you will see some action, and Michael sees some, some serious action here, as does Paul Rudd, who gets thrown through a wall and slammed against uh, another cinder block wall. Paul is very good as, as Evangeline and all the actors, and, and Hannah especially coming in new about wanting to do as much of the physical acting as possible. Obviously, they're things that aren't safe for them to do, but they all want to do as much as possible. I think I would say, particularly uh, in this movie, Evangeline was very, very adamant about, you know, the way that um, Hope moves as Wasp. Not only when she's fighting full size, but when she's flying. We talked a lot about sort of this balletic flying style, and part of that was uh, determined, you know, as we were rehearsing with Evangeline, but also in the, um, the character animation with the visual effects companies. As far as Ghost goes here, we wanted to, her to have almost this uh, Terminator 2 T-1000 quality as she's uh, going through that abandoned building after Scott. There's nothing that stands in her way. He's got to move around all these walls and objects, and she can obviously phase through them, uh, and creating this uh, mislead that Scott is uh, about to meet his end. And that's something that we're constantly calibrating in this end, where we're juggling all these balls of you know the shrinking and growing lab, and you know Hank making it down to the quantum realm, and Scott creating this uh, misdirection, which of course he learned uh, in his online magic school studies. <laughs> um, it all felt in keeping with uh, the tone of our movie. The other thing that really excited me about this movie was the chance to get to do uh, our own Ant-Man and the Wasp version of A Car Chase, which kind of uh, references everything from the Michael Douglas TV series, The Streets of San Francisco, to Bullet, of course, the Peter Yates movies, and maybe most specifically uh, Bogdanovich's What's Up Doc. What's Up Doc we screened early in prep to the people who hadn't seen it, and for me, just as inspiration, I love that movie, I saw it as a kid. It's a chase that takes place, you know, at the time was really a riff on Bullet, but it takes place in San Francisco and is really heavily influenced by not only screwball comedies, but also silent movies and Buster Keaton. And in designing a lot of these chase gags, coming up with a million gags and creating this chase that went through the very specific topography of San Francisco and specific landmarks and used the shrinking and growing technology in hopefully a kind of badass way. 
And again, photorealism was, was the key here, to do something that felt like a gritty chase, but also you could experience some, some shrinking and growing and some Louise commenting on the filthy undercarriage of <laughs> vehicles. That on the carriage, it's filthy. God, they got bigger problems. This stuff, I think, is incredibly uh, effective, and when you see it in formats like IMAX or Screen X, it's, it's doubly so, because it really, really does put you in the action. And it's something we think about a lot, whether we're, you know, in full size or in macro. That's an actual uh, drone shot of the real Lombard Street. This was all shot on location in uh, San Francisco here. Obviously, we did not crash cars and flip cars over... Uh, tourist-laden Lombard Street, but we did shoot um, all throughout and shot all our plates on the real Lombard Street to give it as much uh, verisimilitude as possible. And shots like this where we're really putting the audience down with the shrunken van in Lombard Street, I think are really exhilarating. So um, earlier I talked about kind of the photorealism and it applies to the quantum realm as well. This was one of the trickiest things visual effects and, and story-wise in the movie because we were not only going to see more Quantum Realm than we saw in the first movie, but we were going to be cross-cutting between this uh, chase sequence in broad daylight in San Francisco, and it had to feel like the same movie. So one of the things we talked about in Quantum Realm was, uh, in sequences like this, trying to make it as fantastical but also photorealistic as possible. And we had this kind of philosophy which was, what if we advertised the movie as the makers of Ant-Man and Wasp created special quantum cameras to actually go down and, and shoot on a subatomic level? And what that meant to us philosophically was, let's feel the uh, limitations of the photography in the quantum realm. So we wanted to make it maybe grainier than it might normally be. The environments and the camera work is a little jittery. You see lots of reflection in these sort of particles between the lens and between the action that you're seeing. And, and all of these things kind of combined, and, and also that it might also be hard to focus in the quantum realm, right? So as we get further into the quantum realm, I'll talk about that some more, but that was the guiding philosophy. Here, fun uses of shrinking and growing tech in the chase, introducing motorcycles that we can shrink, and of course, a Stan Lee cameo. This was the very first shot we shot uh, for Ant-Man and the Wasp, was uh, down in, uh, in Georgia, Stan Lee's cameo which I was thrilled about. It's always something that Marvel audiences look for, and there's, a, uh, there's an onus on all the filmmakers in the MCU to try and top the Stan Lee cameo uh, from all the other movies. And so, of course, we put in a very San Francisco-specific joke. But it also felt like a good luck charm to have our first shot of the movie be Stan Lee, who really started it all. The Pez dispenser finally gets paid off here. That was something early on we talked about, like what are some of the you know, tiny, innocent objects that we can grow and they become these crazy weapons throughout the chase. And then also using ghost power set in a car chase and all the weird juxtapositions of Ant-Man, Wasp, Giant Man, various sizes of Giant Man in malfunctioning suit, Ghost with her power set, Shrunken Lab, of course, Sunny Birch showing back up and being this uh, fly in the ointment. It, um, it all led to this crazy, chaotic chase that was shot uh, throughout Atlanta and San Francisco. For me, kind of keeping this stuff, um, you know, moving was a constant thing in editorial. We had a very, very long version of the chase uh, in early cuts of post-production, which really had, uh, was really, I, I called the kitchen scene cut because it really had literally everything we shot in there. And we knew that this chase, you know, the audience can only kind of take so much and you can only sustain so many things at one time. 
So it was constantly whittling around and, and you know, getting rid of these little gags and, and trying to not repeat ourselves with the action, to constantly keep the audience off balance and, and surprised by what happened. But uh, this is clearly something, as you can see, from the very, very beginning uh, of pre-production, I worked with storyboard artists and with, uh, with our in-house previs team and with our editor, Craig Wood. Craig Wood and Dan Lebenthal, by the way. Uh, Dan uh, edited the first Ant-Man and edited this one as well. We brought Craig Wood along as well, who um, cut on Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians Volume 2. Both incredibly talented editors. And I don't know that we would have been able to cut this movie with just one editor. There's so much going on. And Craig was very integral in sort of corralling all of the technical stuff in this chase at the end that was going on. And we worked very closely with previous from the very beginning. So by the time we got on set and on location, we knew exactly what we were doing and where the camera was going to be placed. My approach to this kind of action as a director really is, um, you know, as comedic action, that there is a specific right and funny place for the camera to be at all times, funny or dramatic place. I'm not a director that goes out with six cameras and just, you know, sets them up all around and shoots and says, let's figure it out in editorial. It really does want to be, you know, the camera wants to be very complicit in that action and the way that it's cut and the timing is, is crucial. We're running out of time. Warning, approaching quantum void. Here now, Hank Pym has arrived. Uh, in the void. This is as far as Scott Lang made it in the first movie, and he has a plan up his sleeve. This is where he essentially hits the nitrous and is going to go a step further. In theory, they've determined that if you can make it beyond the void, maybe there's an entire realm down there, and, and that's, uh, that's where Janet says she's going to be. So um, he hits the nitrous here, breaks through the quantum membrane, and here we are in the uh, first stages of the quantum realm here. Quantum Realm was a very tricky thing, obviously because the good news and the bad news is that it can be anything you want it to be, and it's infinite. And a big part of our process here was trying to figure out how much of our story uh, would be in the Quantum Realm and how much our movie could contain, and creating this internal logic where that's about as far as our heroes can get is just beyond the void into this uh, section of the Quantum Realm that Janet calls the Wasteland. She's gonna meet them there, hopefully. But designing it so it felt, um, like it had some terrestrial cues, but it felt very otherworldly. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But now, back to our chase. Another uh, tricky thing was giving Hope and Scott, Ant-Man and Wasp and Giant-Man, lots of different versions of action sequences and also keeping Luis alive during this chase. Luis, who just wants to suit up and be a part of the action, and now gets to actually man one of these uh, shrunken cars to grow it. And of course, this is the one he picks. The Hot Wheel version of the... Uh, Hyundai Veloster, <laughs> and uh, this is a car that uh, when we were looking at it, and I was working with Shepard about it, I was like, this this should look like a 70s Hot Wheel. It should be loud colors and flame decals and, you know, chrome and just the most badass roadster you can imagine. This is our bullet homage, the miniature bullet jump, and uh, Luis finally gets his moment in the sun where he's, uh, he's able to uh, be at the helm of the shrinking technology. Pacific, boys are all over me. I'm on my way. Grace, I'll get the lab. 
Uh, these shots where we come in really close on Giant Man are exhilarating because you really do. It's great to be able to see the actors through these masks. This, you know, this car chase, again, I think for me had its origins in thinking about uh, the Raid 2 and that incredible fight that happened inside the car. Ours is obviously much shorter, but I like the idea of doing a quick version of that with some uh, hope shrinking and growing. Here, of course, the, once we landed on the visual of Scott using a flatbed truck, like a scooter, essentially, um, that just seemed like something incredibly fun. Dan Sudik uh, tricked out this real flatbed with hydraulics, so it listed to one side to, so you could feel the weight of Giant Man leaning on one side. And again, uh, Steph Soretti and, and all our visual effects vendors really made good on this idea of making it as photorealistic as possible. Uh, here we are at uh, Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. This is all shot in San Francisco, uh, which was a thrill. We had planned so much of this to be uh, outside in San Francisco, and we had no idea how much the city was going to let us actually do. And they actually let us do a lot of crazy things, flip cars down streets, shoot down at the pier, take over this pier, shoot giant water cannons of water on, uh, <laughs> on a ton of extras on the pier. But yes, this is all shot in San Francisco. and. For me, that was one of the important things in the movie was San Francisco wants to be a character in this movie. It's very different than any of the other movies in the MCU for that reason. And we got incredibly fortunate with the weather. And what weather we weren't fortunate with, Steph Soretti and his visual effects wizards were able to sort of even out the weather and fix the clouds. In the first movie, we get some real dramatic mileage out of uh, the death of Antony. And here, I think we take a slightly more callous approach at the end here as Scott's trying to summon an ant and they're, uh, they're murdered in succession by seagulls. But this is real, seagulls eat ants. We wanted this thing to be gritty. We barely left the dock, but looks like we got some company. From the very beginning, some of the imagery that we talked about was seeing giant man in the water in the bay and having to chase someone onto a boat which led us to this Sunny Birch hitching a ride on a whale watching thing and this uh, incredibly large giant man. He's 85 feet tall here. This is the biggest he's ever gone. And of course in the comics, in the Hank Pym era, when Hank Pym was giant man, there's a limit to how long he can be giant man. It just takes too much of a toll on his body. So uh, we know at 85 feet here that, uh, that Scott is only gonna have a certain amount of time before he passes out and hopefully he can get the lab back in time. Back to Quantum Realm here, you see this sort of jittery quality, um, very shallow depth of field, and you know all of this sort of the atmospherics here, and it's a bit grainy. You know, you're dealing with a subatomic level here, and we wanted it to be very colorful, but also to feel real and tactile. It couldn't feel like an animated movie or to be cartoonish. As uh, we did our research on quantum, you know, what would happen to an actual person if you could survive the shrinking process is the psychological damage, what happens to your mind. And here we see Hank's mind starting to break down and his mind throws at him this, um, basically this hallucination. He's back in the Pym house. He's hearing voices. He hears his young daughter. He hears seven-year-old Hope and then she's there and Scott's there and his mind is breaking down here. When we talked about the quantum realm, we talked not only about that physical landscape but about the psychology of it and we came upon this idea of that this was sort of a little bit of a, a safety zone for Hank, being back in the house and tying it back into the prologue and hope, and then being visited by what seems like death coming for him. Is it ghost? Is it actually death coming for him? And of course, it turns out it's neither of those things. 
here with the visual effects, we see Hank starting to phase two and tying in this um, ghost quantum dilemma with what is happening to Hank in the quantum realm. He's really starting to kind of break apart and, you know, essentially lose his structural integrity until someone does this um, laying of hands on him and, and takes him out of the moment and brings him back. And of course, it's Janet. Michelle Pfeiffer, my one and only choice for Janet, thinking about her as Janet as far back as the first movie, if we were ever gonna be able to make this one. Uh, fortunately for me and for all of us, she said yes. Uh, she's just, she's one of my favorite actors of all time. She's, uh, you know, Fabulous Baker Boys and Married to the Mob are two of my favorite movies ever. And those are just two of the many, many movies that she's incredible in. I wasn't sure she would want to do a movie like this. She hadn't done a movie like this since um, Batman Returns, uh, and that had been a long time. And we talked a lot about the character. We talked about who Janet was in the realm of Marvel Comics. The fact that Ant-Man and Wasp back in the day were on the cover of Avengers number one. Janet Van Dyne named the Avengers in the comics world. So she's an important legacy figure. And we talked about all of that stuff. And then we also talked about who Janet was 30 years ago and potentially what has she become after 30 years in the quantum realm. And we talked a lot about she was incredibly powerful and that she had not only survived down there, but thrived down there and that she had evolved that, you know, being down there, the environment had sort of allowed her to evolve in a way that was um, uh, more accelerated than had she been on Earth those 30 years. I got the lab. I got the lab. Move. 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 Get out of the Let's go. Scott has made it back to the pier here. He's, uh, he's gotten the lab safely back on land, and he's just trying to get it far enough inland in case it gets grown before he passes out and collapses. This, again, was fun to kind of take the thematic from the comics, where he's only got a limited time as, as Giant Man, and to do basically the nesty plunge here and have him <laughs> land in the bay. Having been there and having been an intimate part of this, I'm still constantly amazed at what visual effects is able to do in terms of the photorealism. This underwater sequence was something that I came up with early on in the process. I really loved the idea of him collapsing in the bay and being underwater and having to be saved. It was important to kind of create this arc with Scott and Hope where he saves her, she saves him, they're equally in peril and um, the thing that she's been chasing the entire movie, getting that lab back, instead of going for the lab here, she goes underwater to save Scott. That that's what's important to her in this moment. The underwater effects are, are terrific. Lab at full scale. They did it. Ready to ascend. Let's go see our daughter. So here, giving our, uh, our heroes some action here, and I like that the Ant-Man and the Wasp movie allows for these generational heroes and that we're telling the story of both sets of Ant-Men and Wasps. That was something we really set out to do in the movie. Scott, 
Again, these underwater effects uh, blew my mind. When we set out to design this sequence, we talked about, you know, I, of course, naively said, so what, are we gonna shoot in a tank? Uh, how do we get, um, does it need to be Evangeline in the suit? Is it a stunt person? And uh, Steph said, oh, no, 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 this will all be done digitally. That's my uh, terrible French accent, by the way. And when these shots started to come back, um, it was really like everything I had hoped for and more, like this, just the idea of the, um, the physics and being underwater and the size difference and, and her looking through the giant eyepiece of the mask. I, I love it. It was just imagery that I wanted. Here, too, this was Evangeline's idea. We, had, we always had the scene on the pier where um, Hope saved Scott. And we played around with different versions. Uh, and she's always thrilled to have saved him. And then, you know, on the thing, she's like, what if I kiss him? What if I kiss him? And we talked about that if and when that should happen in the movie off and on. Uh, and originally it was going to happen later. And just in the moment, it felt right in that moment. And again, that is, uh, that's thanks to Evangeline. And, uh, and it's in the movie. Here, keeping our, our X kind of guys alive and the idea of setting up this notion that was important as we're doing all these, you know, juggling all these sort of big plot mechanics, it was important to kind of keep this story of XCON alive, that these are the guys who show up, they show up for their friend Louise and save him, and then that they end up capturing Sonny Birch and, and turn him in, and that's what turns their company around. What if Hank is right? What if this process kills Janet? But you're worried about her. All I'm saying is that she is a brilliant scientist. She may Here we start to get into the climax. Uh, she's phasing more. We talked about the whole arc of her, uh, her phasing and the progression and the idea that just as Hank and Janet are going to come up, Janet's life is in just serious jeopardy again. There's a lot of uh, quantum energy here, and that was a lot of R&D, too, in terms of what this looks like, but really increasing the prismatic quality of the light here, doing these big sweeping crane shots. Uh, as she's hooked up the rejuvenation chamber to the quantum tunnel, keeping everything as tactile as possible, as much as we can. And seeing now that this uh, quantum extraction has started between the two of them. We wanted this movie to kind of, you know, we talked early, early on about what is the third act? What is it going to build to? Is it going to build to a thing where the quantum tunnel opens and quantum creatures come over and start taking over San Francisco? And that's kind of stuff felt to me like we've seen this a million times and um, it comes becomes more about spectacle of giant creatures that we don't really have any footing with and that the ending wanted to be really about these characters and about this sort of split-second moment where everything comes together at once and uh, everything happens just in the nick of time. Here, sort of the exhilaration of seeing Ant-Man and Wasp finally being this well-oiled machine and fighting together, and it's the only way they're gonna be able to defeat Ghost. And even though they're fighting incredibly well together, uh, she gets the upper hand on Hope and is about to take her out. This shot here, we played a around the idea of fracturing time as he grows to become Giant Man, slowing everything down and seeing all the beats of him having to save Hope there and then shrink again just in time to avoid getting hit by the pod. We knew there were gonna be some hopefully emotional resolutions at the end of this, and we knew that the moment that Hope foresees her mom, uh, Janet, for the first time had to be a powerful one. So in these instances, uh, my approach is to obviously set the cameras, us rehearse with our second team and get the camera move exactly as we can, as quickly as possible, so that we can capture the most spontaneous performance possible from these actors.
I love this moment because the movie, the entire movie since the prologue has been building towards it. And then you have powerhouse actors like Evangelina Michelle performing it. I missed you too, Geraldine. Michelle was very, very involved in the look of Janet. You know, how does she look different from, uh, from the prologue from the uh, 80s Janet Van Dyne? And the idea of having this sort of long flowing gray hair, you know, and looking toward things like Jane Goodall and this idea that, you know, she's been down there and she, there's something, something evolved and something enlightened about Janet Van Dyne now. Even when Ghost reappears here and is potentially a threat for a moment, Hope seems like she's about to go after her and Janet stops her and we see that there is a um, decidedly more uh, peaceful solution to the situation and we start to see a hint of these powers that Janet has gained uh, after having been in the quantum realm for so long. This was a, something that we played around with for a long time, how to introduce it, uh, how much we show of Janet's evolution and what she's become and how much to, to keep as a mystery from the audience here. But the one thing I wanted to, to show here is this benevolence about Janet. She's become a very different type of hero and that she's, she's attained or acquired these powers we're not sure how, but um, that she's mastered sort of this quantum energy and she's able to sort of bring her back to stasis here. And we like the idea again of this father-daughter dynamic and redeeming this, this hero, or this villain rather. You know, we're not sure. We, we like the idea of ending this movie where you saw Ava and there was this whole dilemma about, okay, what do we do with Ava? What becomes of her? And she and Bill Foster slip away and we're left with this sort of ambiguity of, you know, what's going to happen to her? Because she could really go either way. Is she going to relapse and remain a villain or is she going to sort of discover her more heroic self? Uh, we don't know. And that was one of the intriguing things about this movie. We also like the idea, again, of doing this mislead about uh, what do we do with them and cut to the cops. And then, of course, it's Curtin Dave and they've apprehended Sonny Birch and uh, Uzman and Anatolov and used, of course, their own truth serum against them. Walton Goggins, in particular, so committed to this conceit where not only not only is Sonny Birch telling the truth of all the terrible stuff he's done, but he's found some peace. It's a... Uh, there's a load lifted off of him, and he's, he's in a very zen place, and I thought that was uh, a really, really funny take on that moment. Here is very much a, a comic panel, uh, what would have been sort of a Jack Kirby-esque uh, composition, uh, and really using, again, I haven't talked about, we shot this uh, movie in the uh, 240 aspect ratio as opposed to 185, which is what we did the first movie, and it felt like a good progression, as I said, uh, getting out and wanting to see and feel the environment more than we did in the first movie, and that so much of it is just, um, you know, broad daylight San Francisco and really being able to play the frame more and opening it up. Here, of course, uh, a uh, cheap gag of uh, Paul Rudd running in his underwear. I mean, you know, what movie-going experience... <laughs> it's just not complete if you don't see that. Um, here we played around again with the idea of um, Scott's magic and misdirection writ large. He's created this uh, large-scale... Uh, illusion to uh, occupy the FBI agents while they shrink the lab and take it somewhere else in the city. We never explain, intentionally so, how Scott Lang pulls off that trick. Just as a magician doesn't reveal their tricks, we don't reveal it either. 
Uh, this scene was uh, we shot in Chinatown in San Francisco, and uh, we talked a lot about the resolution or lack of resolution between these two characters and what happens. Are they brought to justice? And we finally decided we liked the idea that they slipped away, not knowing what was going to happen. But the important thing is that Bill Foster, hero as he is, is going to stand by her uh, through a whatever happens. And I really like that emotional bond between those characters. So it all has to build to this moment where Jimmy Woo thinks he's finally going to catch Scott in violation of his house arrest. And of course, he's wrong. Scott has managed to get back uh, before they have, and of course is engaging in one of his favorite pastimes, the electronic drum set. I'm a drummer. It was important to not only get drums in this movie, but to have them uh, as accurate as possible. Paul Rudd, no slouch on the electronic drums, by the way. And of course, as you'll see later in a tag, we have a gigantic ant playing drums. And I, I made sure that when he's hitting the ride cymbal, you hear a ride cymbal. When he's hitting the hi-hat, you hear a hi-hat. I knew that was going to be important to me and to friends of mine such as John Worcester, who will post on Twitter when drums aren't uh, period accurate in movies, and Tom Sharpling, uh, who tends to ding mistakes like that in movies. That's for you guys. I'll be seeing you again. Where? Huh? Where will you be seeing me again? Like... In general. Here, another of my favorite scenes between um, Randall Park and Paul Rudd. We shot a lot of different versions of this moment where he's let off house arrest, but we just let these two go and sort of build this incredibly awkward moment where, uh, you know, the, this meeting of minds and Jimmy Woo is, um, he's proud of Scott. He feels frustrated he didn't catch him, but he's hes proud of him and kind of wants to be his friend. <laughs> and uh, and uh, they were terrific together in this scene. Structurally, we knew we were going to have to address the events of Infinity War at some point in this movie. And we talked throughout the writing process of, you know, throughout the course of our story, do we see monitors in the background? Do we start to seed in things going on in other parts of the world? And that struck us as kind of lazy, and we'd seen it before. So we finally landed on the structure, which felt like the very specific Ant-Man and the Wasp way of dealing with the events of the end of Infinity War, which was to tie up all of our character stories in this kind of too neat resolution, where it's almost too mo too pretty of a bow on the end of every story. Scott is off house arrest. He's able to go to the house and pick up Cassie and see his daughter. The ex-con guys land the care petting account because he's seen them on TV having captured Sonny Birch. Hank and Janet, of course, are reunited, and they go on a, a well-earned vacation on a remote island. And of course, he presents her with the shrunken house from the first movie. They grow it and are able to relax a little while. And then, of course, um, we cut to Them, the classic giant ant movie from the 50s, and Scott Hope and Cassie are at a drive-in theater. This is awesome. So, Cassie, what do you want to be when you grow up? We like the idea of bringing genuine resolution to these characters, uh, all to the tune of uh, the Partridge family again. Come on, get happy and then have a really colorful, fun, uh, main on end title sequence, and then present them with a tag scene uh, where it's a little bit in the future and they are working on some new quantum technology. And I'll get to that in a moment. We had several cuts of this scene, one where we revealed the uh, shrunken drive-in very early, but uh, when we showed it to audiences, this seemed to pack the best punches not to reveal it to the end, and it felt like a great ending shot of the movie where their uh, driving theater is a laptop in the yard. 
coming up with fun main on end title sequences is, is always a challenge. And this one actually early on, we talked about doing a fake behind the scenes documentary, which showed uh, us shooting Ant-Man and the Wasp more like a uh, Godzilla movie from the 50s, where where, where, where where people in suits stomping on model cityscapes. Keying off of that, we decided to do um, this sequence, which um, really kind of came out of my, uh, when I used to do Super 8 movies as a kid, I would always build these tabletop dioramas, you know, with the you know miniature train models and things like that and shoot them in Super 8. And I always think of that as sort of like the core spirit of filmmaking for me, just kind of doing something in your backyard with your friends and, and shooting it and blowing things up. And that was always fun as a kid. So this really is kind of an homage to that, just the tabletop model version of our movie, revisiting these specific moments from the movie, but in this very sort of lo-fi molded plastic tabletop diorama thing. And uh, it also definitely uh, was in line with our tone of ending the movie in a very colorful, happy way, and then this gut punch of a, uh, a tag scene. I have to stop and also talk about the music. Chris Beck, again, knocked it out of the park. Of course, he did the score for the first Ant-Man, and he returns for Ant-Man and the Wasp, continuing that great Ant-Man theme he came up with, but also an incredible Wasp theme and, you know, uh, quantum theme and all this stuff. He really has embodied the spirit of these movies and brings to mind these little hints of Bernard Herrmann and Jerry Goldsmith and, and really just absolutely the spirit of the movies. I first worked with Chris Beck on my first movie, Bring It On, in 2000, and it's been so exciting to be able to work on these movies, you know, uh, with a large orchestra on both these movies. Here is our tag scene. Part of the thing here was to hit the audience with as much random information as possible. Where are they? They're on a parking deck somewhere in the city. We see Janet in street clothes for the first time. There's Luis's van. In the back of the van is a shrunken quantum tunnel, it appears. Now Scott is in his Ant-Man suit. What is he doing there? Um, he's turning something on, so uh, they fire up the tunnel. Here's Hope. She's got a container, and they're talking about going and getting quantum healing particles. So there's a lot for the audience to take in. And the idea was, let's just sort of give them a taste of, um, you know, now after all those neat resolutions, like what are these heroes up to next? Are they progressing this quantum technology? What are they doing? And they've got a portable tunnel and um, Scott's gonna go in and we learned that he's getting these particles to sort of hopefully um, further heal Ghost. So that's intriguing. Somehow there's been communication between Bill Foster and Ava and Hank and Janet and Hope and Scott. Suddenly he's lost in the quantum realm. They've lost contact, but of course it's Scott screwing around and, and uh, things are funny. So it was always, it was sort of building all these, what were hopefully gonna be misleads for the audience. Now presenting a, another part of the quantum realm, this very colorful cosmic part of the quantum realm where he's getting these healing particles. And now things go south. And now we present how our movie Ant-Man and the Wasp deals with the dramatic events that we saw at the end of Infinity War. Scott uh, thinks they're playing a joke on him. We cut back and the, uh, the three characters that we've seen are no longer there. They've been turned to ash thanks to Thanos. And seemingly Scott Lang is trapped in the quantum realm. To see that sequence uh, with an audience has been incredibly gratifying. And again, there were many, many different ways we talked about how to incorporate 
the Infinity War events into our movie, and that felt like the way to do it. It felt cheeky in the way that hopefully Ant-Man and the Wasp is cheeky, but um, really does pack a dramatic punch with audiences as you see it in the theater. What this means in the larger sense, of course, I'm not at liberty to say, you know that. Even if you're, you're sitting here listening to this and you've been listening to me ramble on for two hours and you're hanging on the hope, oh man, is he gonna reveal something about Avengers 4 that I don't know? Well, guess what, you're in luck. I have here the screenplay uh, for Avengers 4, which I'm going to read to you right now. But before I actually get through the entire script, I'm just gonna read some of the salient plot points. Now, these are not only spoilers, I would say these are extreme spoilers, so I'm gonna go through them very, very carefully. Okay, so the first question is, is everyone dead or, or who's coming back? Well, uh, here's what I'll say uh, about, I can only speak about our characters in Ant-Man and the Wasp. So Scott Lang is in the quantum realm and um, he uh, is seemingly trapped and uh, we don't quite know how he's gonna get out. We know in the first movie, he had some grow discs with him uh, that he used to get out. But dramatically, we can't go to that well again. And well, that would just be lazy as filmmakers. We can't do that again. So um, we made sure that he uh, does not have any grow discs with him uh, in, in the new suit. And remember, it's, uh, it appears that it's the malfunctioning suit. So how's he gonna get out of that? Well, here's how. And, and uh, he manages to uh, do what I just said. So um, you guys got that, right? Cool. So uh, now let's talk about uh, our favorite Avengers. Let's talk about Spider-Man. Let's talk about Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, um, uh, Hulk. What happens to these characters in Avengers 4? Well, hang on, someone's coming in. Yeah? You know what? Uh, I'm being told that I cannot actually tell you any of this stuff. I thought the street date of this disc would allow me to kind of reveal some of the secrets, but um, I'm not going to be able to reveal any of that. I apologize for that. Sorry to get your hopes up about that. Um, I can uh, talk to you about uh, the next Ant-Man movie. Actually, I'm not allowed to talk about that either. I can't... Uh, there's really been no determination as to whether there is even going to be a next Ant-Man movie uh, or a Wasp movie or, or anything. We don't know anything. Um, and uh, I'm not allowed to talk about that. So, um, let's talk about, um, let's talk about Planet of the Apes. You guys like the Apes movies? I've been digging those movies. I like those a lot. I like the originals. I grew up on them. I love them. The first original Planet of the Apes uh, turned 50 this year. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that. Um, I don't know uh, where that series is going to go, but I'm excited to see it always. Um, any Star Wars fans out there? You guys Star Wars fans? They've been making more Star Wars movies. Those are going to continue. Um, let's see. Um, um, I'm actually going to have an Altoid. Hold on. Altoids um, were featured in the movie. As a result, I got a lifetime supply of Altoids. 
which means I'm going to have the freshest breath imaginable, really, for the rest of my life. Um, it, uh, oh, these are really curiously strong, man. Um, delicious peppermint flavor. Um, I'm not getting any financial kickback from saying that either. That comes from the heart, which is really good. I've been talking for two hours straight. <clears throat> um, you know, if you don't, uh, hydrate, have enough Altoids, things can go seriously wrong. You know what? I'm going to go back on point now. I'm going to talk about Chris Beck's music, which you're hearing throughout this uh, end credit sequence. Chris was able to, uh, as I said, take all the themes from the original movie and expand on them and create new themes. And the entire score was recorded at Abbey Road, where, of course, the Beatles recorded uh, all of their records. And uh, I was not able to go. Not, not, I was able to go to one of the sessions. I think there were three. Laura, were there three or four sessions? I think there were maybe four sessions, uh, recording sessions at Abbey Road. You have to understand, this would, have, this would have been a dream come true for me. Abbey Road. To be able to sit where John, Paul, George, and Ringo recorded all of their records. Nope. Didn't have time. Was here in post-production editing, uh, working on visual effects, and uh, we could sort of tap in via satellite, but it's not the same thing. Oh, look, Tilting Scale, written by Norwood Cheek, performed by Cardinal Family Singers on that credit. That's my friend Norwood. I play drums on that track, proving once again that I, uh, that I am a drummer. Um, would have loved to have gone to Abbey Road. Couldn't go. You think on a movie like this that the director would be able to go, but no, it didn't happen. Didn't happen the first time. Uh, had a pact, a blood pact that I would go this time. I violated that blood pact. I did not go. So um, for that reason alone, uh, we have to do a third Ant-Man and Wasp movie. Because um, I got to go to Abbey Road, where the Beatles recorded. Okay, so now we're getting to what is known as the, uh, the second tag. And we know we have just gut-punched the audience with our tag that addresses the blip out. Now we're back at Scott's apartment. We see an emergency broadcast test on the screen. This is the aftermath. And the only thing left standing is the ant that Hank and Hope uh, programmed to do Scott's moves. Still alive and still jamming. Ant-Man and the Wasp will return? Thank you for your time. This has been Peyton Reed, director of Ant-Man and the Wasp. See you soon.